Let's pray together. Father, again, what an incredible privilege it is to gather as your people, regardless of the week that we've had, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we come to the one thing that never changes. We come to your love and your grace that you have shown to us that you have poured out lavishly on us in Christ. And so now, as we listen to your word, we want to join with Peter of old, who said, we come to you, Lord Jesus, because you have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? So help us, we pray, to have ears to hear and hearts to receive what you are saying to us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. us to discern what God was pointing to as he established his people and prepared the world to meet their Messiah. So today we're going to pick the series back up again. We're going to spend about four weeks, including today, just going a little bit further through this book as we head towards celebrating Christmas. He's been drawing our attention in chapter 4, which is where we're up to, he's been drawing our attention to the role of the high priest in ancient Israel, in Jewish worship. And he's been pointing us towards the fact that Jesus is our ultimate high priest. Jesus is the fulfillment of what God has been doing amongst his people. So as a way of catching ourselves back up to where we were again, I want you to grab your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, and we're just going to read the closing verses of chapter 4 to remind ourselves where we are. This is probably, we could sort of title this, Hold Fast. Hold Fast. Hebrews 4, starting from verse 14, I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. 
Now, to help ramp our brain up a little bit, but more importantly, our hearts, let's refresh ourselves a little bit of the logic that the writer of the book of Hebrews is using here. Because if we don't, we're going to miss the point, not only what he's just said, but also what we're going to read in the beginning of chapter 5, because it's connected. Here's the big point for everything that we're going to talk about today. What the writer of the book of Hebrews is wanting us to see is that he wants us to root the action of our life, the things that we're doing, he wants to root them in ultimate reality. So verse 14, look at it again in your Bibles and you'll see it. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. There's the ultimate reality, all right? Since we have this great high priest, Jesus the Son of God, let us, and here comes the action, let us hold fast to our confession. So there's an ultimate reality, which is Jesus Christ, the great high priest, and the writer is saying to us, since that's true, since you have a high priest... Let's hold fast to our confession. This is a, this is true, so let's do this type logical relationship. Since we have a great high priest, let us hold fast. Now, the writer is obviously wanting you to hold fast to something, right? Your confession. But that holding fast, that sort of tenacity that he's talking about there, that sort of resilience, that sort of stubbornness to not let go of something. He says, that's not, that's not connected to your willpower, which is good news because my willpower is terrible. Some of us have great willpower. I haven't met too many people whose willpower is like 100%. But this isn't about your ability to sort of just... I'm going to hold on. I'm not going to let go. I don't recommend this movie to everyone, but if you have seen the movie Titanic, I, I just I love making fun of that movie. I'll never let you go, Jack. Bye. I've done that with stuff that I, I want to have really good willpower about, right? I'm never, ever going to do that again. What do you do? Do it again. I'm never going to do that again. What do I do? I do it. Or, more positively, you know what? Every day this week, I'm going to do this. We're, we're fast approaching the time of year when we all love to try and do that in our New Year's resolutions, Right? But this isn't about the willpower. This this isn't about your ability to hold fast to your confession. And if you're a really strong Christian, you'll do really well at that. The writer of the book of Hebrews doesn't link our ability to hold fast to our confession, to our willpower. He links it to the fact that we have a great high priest. That is the ultimate reality. We have a high priest who has come to us from God, Jesus Christ. And this reality gives us great confidence to endure in holding fast to our confession. 
Now, so that we're all clear on the significance of what this confession is about, the first four chapters of the book of Hebrews has been laying a foundation to our confidence that Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God and is sufficient. He's he's more than enough to meet God's just demands on our behalf and to fulfill God's righteous requirements on our behalf and to bring us to God. Jesus is enough. So this is our confession according to the first four chapters of Hebrews and this theme will continue. This is our confession. Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is my only hope and plea. That's our confession. And now he says... You have a great high priest, one that's come from God, Jesus Christ. And because this is true, hold fast to that confession. Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is my only hope and plea. That is the action rooted in reality that we need to grasp. Now, Maybe you think that should be enough, but the writer is very gracious to us, and he now gives us a number of pillars, foundation stones that act to bolster and strengthen our confidence in that. So here's the first one. We have, and this is still revision, back in chapter 4, we have a sympathizing high priest. So, so in verse 14, we, we see we have this great high priest that's come. But what type of high priest is he? Vindictive? Demanding? No. We have a sympathizing high priest. That's the first foundation stone that the writer gives us. We have a high priest who understands the frailty of human existence. And he, he does not act towards us harshly. Or, or callously, he understands, the writer says. So in verses 15 and verse 16 of Hebrews, this is what we see in chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore... Let us approach the throne of grace with what? Boldness or with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Who needs grace right now? We do. All of us. Who needs mercy right now? All of us do. And and we can actually boldly walk into the presence of God, the very God that has, over time, through ever since the creation of the world, the moment that humankind sinned, the moment that they fell away from God's presence, what occurred? Do you remember what it was like in the garden? Do you remember when Adam and Eve would walk with God in the cool of the afternoon and then sin into the world through disobedience and God came walking in the garden as was his custom to do and what did he find? He found Adam and Eve hiding and he said, 
Adam, where are you? Adam said, we were naked and we were ashamed and so we hid. And mankind has been doing that ever since. And if we enter the throne of grace without the work of Christ on our behalf, just like all those through the Old Testament that saw God face to face, we would say, I've seen the Lord. I'm going to surely die. We, we can't meet God on our own terms without fear of death. But we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. One that hasn't sinned. One that understands what it's like to walk in the frailty of human flesh. And because we have that high priest, the one who sympathizes with our weakness, we can enter the throne of God. We can enter into the presence of God and we can do it with boldness. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we will find mercy and we will find grace. See, it's another action that's rooted in reality, right? The writer says, listen, you have a sympathizing high priest, not a, not a judgmental high priest. You have a sympathizing one, one who understands. So, so enter, there's the action, enter boldly. If we did not have Jesus, we could not enter the throne room without fear of death the fact that jesus sympathizes with us knows us understands us has walked as dust like we do that means everything so there's the first pillar the first confidence we have a sympathizing high priest and i hope that you remember what the big point was we have a high priest, remember, Jesus, the Son of God. So what? So hold fast to your confession that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is sufficient. That Jesus is our only hope and plea. Because Jesus is our high priest. That's the first pillar. Now we're going to get to chapter 5 and we're not going to spend heaps of time. We're just going to do 10 verses. I'm going to show you sort of the main thrust of where this argument continues because it's connected to what we were just looking at in chapter 4. The second pillar, the second foundation stone of our confidence is this. Not only was Jesus a sympathizing high priest, but Jesus is the chosen high priest. He's the chosen high priest. So let's read together the first 10 verses of chapter 5. Hebrews 5, starting from verse 1. Read along in your Bible or look on the screen if you, if you can. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also clothed with weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people. No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, 
But God, who said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father, also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud voices and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, it would be nice to spend a heap of time on this. But I want to just point out a couple of key developments in in how the writer is sort of pushing our minds back to that big main point that we saw in chapter 4. And then I want to make a couple of remarks about this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. And then thirdly, I want to make sure that we're not misunderstanding a few remarks that the writer makes about Jesus, that some people have twisted to make, say, all sorts of damaging things over the years. So let's, let's go back to the first thing that we want to try and do, and let's just see what the writer's saying about the priesthood of Jesus, the priesthood of Jesus. This passage is sort of, fun, the 10 verses, it's sort of um, broken up into two big sections, all right? Just so that you're very clear about what he's trying to say. The first four verses, if you're an underlining person or you like to draw brackets, you could draw a bracket around the first four verses. And really he's just doing a summary of the function and the role of an earthly high priest, not Jesus. All right? An earthly high priest. And then from verses 5 down to verse 10, we see how Jesus is similar to that, but superior. All right? He's similar, but superior. So let's just quickly think about what he says about the earthly high priest so that we can understand what his logic is here. Large portions of the Old Testament are given over to the role and the function of the priesthood, especially the high priest's role in leading Israel to worship and helping them order and function in their religious life. But here, the writer summarizes all of those passages down to four verses. And he gives us a snapshot of some very important distinctions in the high priest role. Here's the first one. The high priest, he says, was appointed from within mankind. Okay, An angel wasn't sent to fulfill this role. A man was. That's the first distinction he makes. The second one is this. From, this is taken out of verses 1 through 4. His role was directed to matters that relate to how God and man relate to one another and how they engage with each other. He had two main roles. One was to represent mankind back to God. And the other was to show mankind what God was like and to be a spokesperson for God's purposes. It says he offered up both gift and and sacrifice. The high priest stood as a representative mankind to God and as a representative God to mankind. This is the third thing he says about him. Because he was appointed from within mankind, 
these high priests experienced all the fullness of humanity and they could sympathize with all the frailties of the people. And that was so that they could be patient and that they could be kind. Fourth thing he says about them is because he experienced weakness, the high priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sin, not just the sins of the people. Why? Because they were prone to sin and weakness just like everybody else. The high priest wasn't self-appointed, is his final point. They weren't, they weren't selected by popular vote. They didn't line up all the candidates and ask people to buzz them out. Not you, not you, I think you'd be great. That's not how they were chosen. It says that they must be chosen by God for the role. That's an earthly high priest. But verses 5 through 10 say Jesus is the same as that, but better. Jesus is similar to that, but superior. And he says that, you can see it in verse 5, where he says, In the same way, in the same way, Jesus, all right? He, he didn't exalt himself to become a high priest, the verse says. This is how the writer is going to draw our attention, not just from an earthly high priest, but now to see Jesus. Jesus didn't grasp, it says, the position of high priest. Jesus didn't self-appoint himself into that role to sort of you know, attain some lofty ambition that he had. The writer says Jesus was appointed by the Father through ancient prophecy and fulfilled by public declaration. That's why he quotes from the Psalms, You are my son, today I have become your father. Do you remember when Jesus walked the earth? How many times was it that the Father spoke from heaven? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Father, God, confirmed his choice, confirmed in front of all of us that he had placed his hand on Jesus for this role. Jesus took this role willingly. He didn't chase after it. He didn't pursue it. But he took it willingly. So not only should we view Jesus as God's representation to mankind, which he is, do you remember? When the disciples said, show us the Father and we'll be happy. What did he say to them? He says, Thomas, if, if you've seen me... You've seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect representation of God to mankind. We want to know what God's like. If today you're wondering, I wish I could just see God. I wish I could know what he's like. Then Jesus is still saying to you today, look to me. Look to me. See me and you've seen God. Jesus is God's representation to mankind. 
perfectly, wholly, absolutely. But this passage says that he's also our representation to the Father. Because Jesus didn't just stay in his position of authority and might and power in the courts of heaven. Jesus humbled himself and did what? He became like we are. We're entering into a time of year where the whole world, whether they realize it or not, pauses to recall a little town in where? Israel, Bethlehem, a, a little stable overlooked, uh, a young man and a young woman of no importance from a, a region in the country where everyone thought nothing good could come from, and shepherds the most lowly of professions were the ones that God first revealed himself to. And a manger where a baby lay who would change all human history. The God who became flesh. Emmanuel. God with us And so Jesus comes and takes our flesh upon himself. And he represents us back to God as a man. So in chapter 5 verses 7 through 10. It says during his earthly life he offered prayers and appeals. With loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son He learned obedience from what he suffered. And after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal life. He was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So while Jesus is the same as their earthly high priests, We must also see that he's superior. He's better. The writer goes to great lengths to sort of focus us and say, listen, Jesus is better. He he is the substance of the shadows that we saw in the Old Testament. Because while Jesus could sympathize with us in our weaknesses, he himself was without sin. Remember what it said in chapter 4, verse 15? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Now, twice now a name has popped up in this little reading, Melchizedek. He's a bit of a mystery. So let me just take about two minutes to try and um, just show the connection, I think, with why this is important. How is Jesus a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek? It says it twice in those 10 verses. I mean, first question, who's this guy anyway, right? Melchizedek. Why does it matter? Look, in lots of ways, this, this sort of character, this person from the Old Testament is quite a mystery. We don't 
know much about him at all. We know very little about him, and yet he, he features quite prominently in this passage. He's referenced a couple of times, mostly in similar ways to what we've just read. The only other place we have to go off is a very brief interaction between Abram, way back in the Old Testament, Genesis 14. You don't have to turn to it if you don't right now. We'll have a passage up for you to look at, but... Abram and Melchizedek had a very brief interaction following a victory that Abram had over an alliance of kings that were ravaging the land. And Abram went out and and fought against them and was victorious. And we'll pick the story up, Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. It says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So just a couple of observations about this guy Melchizedek that I think connect back to why the author is saying it. Melchizedek was both a king, it says, and a priest which was highly unusual in in Old Testament history. It was certainly never done under Israel's religious and political structure. So we can see that Melchizedek, Jesus, is identified as both a king, isn't he? King of kings, lord of lords, but he's also our priest. So... In the order of Melchizedek could mean that Jesus is a lot like Melchizedek because Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. That's, that's one way that we could see this as being true. I think more importantly, and especially because of the context of what the writer's been saying to us, there's something very unique about Melchizedek, particularly in the way that he relates to the Old Testament story. That passage in Genesis says that he was king over Salem, which at that point in time didn't belong to any part of God's covenant people. It was a Gentile city, not a part of what would one day become Israel. And yet it says very clearly that he was appointed by God to be his priest. Now, we don't know much more about him than that, nor about this city than that. Except that, in God's providence, God chose a man and said, you will be my priest. And even though this man was a part of a Gentile nation and a Gentile city, God had put his hand on him and said, I'm going to choose you to be my king and priest in that place. In the same way, God has taken Jesus. In Christ, he has shown us both king and priest, and he has chosen him, the writer says, just like he chose Melchizedek. He is a priest forever, it says, in the order of Melchizedek. Now, as we finish, I want to give you a little warning about a couple of things that are said in this passage that I don't want to trip you up. There are two phrases in this passage that includes some words that have been distorted over the years to try and prove the very thing that I think the writer of Hebrews is trying to say isn't true. You'll find them in 
verses 8 through 10, that little tiny passage of a couple of verses. They say, although he was the son, he learned obedience. You can underline that. He learned obedience from what he suffered. And then it says, after he was perfected. You can underline that. Perfected. He became the source of eternal salvation. Those two phrases, those two words, or the ideas that they carry, are this. He learned obedience and after he was perfected. Some have tried to convince us that if Jesus had to learn obedience, that meant that at some point in time he was disobedient. That's simply not true. That's not what the writer is trying to communicate. Jesus has always been the sinless, spotless Son of God. Always. Even in his humanity. What the writer is trying to say, though, is that it took the suffering of Jesus in his humanity to express the extent of his willingness to submit to the Father's will. He learnt what it meant to really be obedient to the point of death. He wasn't disobedient before and then became obedient. His obedience was perfected in the way that it was proven, it was tested, and it was found to be true. He learned obedience. In a similar way, we learn just how deep the water is when we jump out of the boat. You might go, that's pretty deep. Jump out of the boat and you'll find out how deep it is. Jesus has always been the spotless son of God, always obedient to the father. And yet we see in the deepest trials of his human existence, even in a garden just before his death, pleading with the father, we can see the testing of his obedience and we see just how perfect it really was. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. It says after he was perfected in a similar way. Some people think, well, does that mean that he was imperfect before? Does it mean that at some point in time, Jesus wasn't perfect? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Again, Jesus has always been the sinless, spotless son of God, even in his humanity. But reflect on these verses as we're done. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11 say this about Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason... God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, meaning that Jesus' obedience stretched all the way to the very end. He did not fall short. He did not shy away. He saw it through. And the passage says that for this reason, God has highly exalted him. Jesus lowered himself in obedience to become just as we are, 
Jesus is the perfect high priest, not only because he can truly represent God to us, but so importantly for our salvation, he can truly represent us to, be, to God. So here's the big point back in chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, remember, a sympathizing high priest and a chosen high priest, let us hold fast to our confession. What is our confession? Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. And Jesus is my only hope and plea. Let's pray. Jesus, we simply want to say this morning, we thank you that you are our high priest. You sympathize with us. You know what it is like to walk as dust like we do. You know what it's like to be tempted in every way. We thank you that you are the high priest who doesn't condemn but embraces us. But we thank you that you are chosen by God. That you didn't grasp this for yourself. That you, that you represent God to us but, but us to God. And so because we have you, Jesus, as our high priest, then we hold fast to our confession that you are enough. Jesus, you are sufficient. Jesus, you are our only hope and plea. And we worship you this morning. Amen.